there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. I am so glad you press play. If you're one of those people who can't imagine staying in the same career for the next 30 years, guess what? You're not alone. According to a news release published in 2015 by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, younger baby boomers, those are people born between 1957 and 1964, held an average of 11.7 jobs between the ages of 18 and 48. Now, they don't track the number of careers these folks have had, apparently because they can't agree on what actually constitutes changing from one career into another. But my next guest, just like me, has had a number of jobs and different careers, starting as a journalist, then moving into communication strategy, and now as a CEO of a nonprofit. But before I introduce you to Sean Gibbons, I want to ask you a huge favor. If you haven't already given us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows, I would greatly appreciate it if you would give us a rating and a review. Our mission is to help as many young people as possible turn their degrees into careers they love. And I need your help getting the word out that this free resource exists. Thank you from the bottom of my coffee cup. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And joining me today is Sean Gibbons, the CEO of the incredible Communications Network, which supports foundations and nonprofits to improve lives through the power of smart communications. Prior to joining the Communications Network, Sean was Vice President for Communications and Senior Fellow at Third Way, a public policy think tank in Washington, D.C. Previously, Sean served as Director of Media Strategy at the Center for American Progress, also known as CAP, where Sean created an innovative online video department and many of its social media platforms. And before Sean's career in public policy, he was an award-winning producer at CNN, where among many roles, he served as the Washington producer for Newsnight with Aaron Brown, American Morning, and Anderson Cooper 360. Sean, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready? to go? I am looking forward to this conversation. It's so nice to be with you. Oh, it is so great to have you here. Before we get into you and your really incredible career, Sean, could you please explain to our listeners what the Communications Network is, who its members are, and what the network does to support those members? Sure. The Communications Network's been around 40 years, and we exist to connect the people working in the field of communications for good. So these are the folks doing communications work at the large foundations and nonprofits around the country. And the network's purpose is to help tether these folks together, to weave together a community so that these folks can all learn together. Because the field of communications is constantly evolving. As a point of example, no one had a Facebook strategy 10 years ago. Of course, now it's very much a way that many, many organizations in our space do business. And 
so there is a constant need to learn and to grow and to find places to ask questions. And our belief is that the future of learning is around networks. And so this organization for 40 years has been a network that's provided a place for people to come with questions, to share what they've learned. It's a really, really inspiring place filled with just some of the most extraordinary people you'd ever get the chance to meet. And when you say, as you do on your website, that this is about communications for good, what does that mean? And why does it matter? Well, I guess it means it's not communications for evil. It's so <laughs> crass. These are folks who roll out of bed and work for organizations that are dedicated to making the world a better place. And so that can range widely. Members of the Communications Network work at the Metropolitan Museum of Art or at the Knight Foundation or World Wildlife Fund or at the Brookings Institution, all kinds of extraordinary organizations whose mission is to uplift and inform and enhance the lives of people here in the United States and around the world. And so the communications function within these organizations organizations is really about taking the ideas that animate these different organizations. And those ideas could be as broad as helping everyone lead a healthier life to as narrow as everyone in our town should have a good meal to eat. But taking those ideas out into the wider world is a communications task. And that's what the folks who make up the network are charged with doing every day for their organizations. And the luxury of the network is that they don't have to do it alone. They have a community of colleagues who's there to help them and help inform them and share new ideas and innovations and best practices. Great. For those Java junkies who are listening right now, those between the ages of 18, let's say, and 28, some of whom may still be in school and others who may have already graduated with majors outside the field of journalism or communications, Sean, what do you want them to know about what this career track is really like? And is this the kind of career where your major in college really matters? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is we could use you. There are hundreds, if not thousands of folks working in the social sector. I think one of the things folks don't realize is that if you added up all the work and grants and rent payments and everything else that the social sector generates in any given year, it's bigger than Hollywood. It's over a trillion dollars a year. It was an estimate that the social sector, the foundation of the nonprofit world, makes up about 10% of the U.S. economy. And so we could certainly use the help. In terms of skills or things you might have majored in that might be helpful to you, I think for a very long time in my field, there was a belief that if you have an English major on staff who writes nicely, that's your comms person. And that certainly can still be true, but increasingly... There is a level of rigor and data and science that's coming into the field that's really extraordinary and really important because it's making us more effective. We're learning a lot not only about how people make decisions and some of the brain science that's out there, but even learning through really incredible designers how to help people gather and interpret information. And all of this is happening inside the field. And so it means there's room for lots of good people who maybe you're not an English major or an especially strong writer, but maybe you have wonderful data analytic skills or you have particular interest for background in psychology. I think all those skills can be brought to bear in this field at this time. I think that's so fascinating. And I have actually seen that in the course of doing Time for Coffee and interviewing different professionals, for example, at one organization, Global Giving, where they have a data scientist on staff because they need the specific percentages that are able to quantify what the impact is of the work that they're doing, that their donors, whether it's the general public or whether it's foundations or corporations, are demanding that kind of nitty-gritty information in order to persuade them to continue to give them money. 
We did a research project not too long ago looking at the core competencies that are required to do communications work well in the foundation and nonprofit space. And it won't surprise you to hear that some of the core skills, so strong writing and critical thinking skills are really important. And the number one skill that people prize was strategic thinking. But a place where there was a tremendous amount of room for growth, there was two things that I thought were interesting. One was high emotional quotients. So people who have deep sensitivity and the ability to understand and engage with other folks. We know these folks. You see them. Sometimes they get referred to pejoratively as social butterflies. But in fact, they have really incredible skills. And those soft skills, I think, are really valuable in the communication space. The other thing, which I guess would be more of a hard skill, is the data sciences. So increasingly, the level of rigor and data and science that's brought to bear in the comm shops is a place where traditionally data scientists have probably not felt welcome and folks are looking for them with open arms and anxiously awaiting their arrival in many, many shops around the sector. Oh, that is so interesting. Sean, I want to flash back for a moment to when you were at CNN working Mm -hmm. as a producer for some of the network's marquee shows. In hindsight, what do you think the skills were that you were honing on the job that you later discovered, maybe you even knew it at the time, would be incredibly useful to have to transfer into the world of communications at places like the Center for American Progress and Third Way? I think the single biggest skill you pick up in the news business, and I presume this applies to anybody, whether you're working a broadcaster or otherwise, is problem solving. Taking whatever the circumstances give you on any given day and wrestling that down and delivering whatever the product is that you're charged with doing. I think the fact that you work in a deadline environment is particularly helpful. So I guess if I was going to distill that down, I'd say there's a lot of creative thinking, determination, having a sort of a quick and facile mind, being able to synthesize and take in information quickly, make sense of it, distill it. Those are all incredibly useful skills, and they served me really well throughout my career in ways that I maybe didn't anticipate that I was picking these things up at the time. I think the other thing that I did not necessarily anticipate moving into the communications field is in the journalism space, your instinct is to always to tell more, to be transparent and to learn more and to share what you're learning. In the comm space, one definition of strategy is figuring out what you're not going to do finding the spaces to say no and being really disciplined, which isn't something you do in the news business too, I suppose, but it seems like it's much more present in the communication space. I couldn't agree more. And I think because you and I not only have the CNN experience that we've shared, but at one point I worked at the American Red Cross as director of international communications. And even though I wasn't necessarily thinking this way, what I discovered is that you have finite resources. And so you can't throw another body at whatever that new project is. You have to, as you said, become more disciplined and get buy-in from others to say, no, we're not going to do that because we're going to go deep here. Oh, I am incredibly grateful to my first bosses post-CNN, Laura Nichols and Jennifer Palmieri, because, oh boy, the first six months in that job, coming from journalism, I felt like I was the pro from Dover. I knew it all. We had televisions on in the communications bullpen on any given day, and that was familiar to me. I knew what was happening behind the scenes, and I had a particular knowledge that they valued there. But in terms of knowing how to do the communications work, I was adrift. I didn't even know what I didn't know. And so it was really interesting. After about six months, one of them said to me, it was kind of fun watching you drown there for a while, but we finally <laughs> decided we liked you enough that we would pick you up out of the water and put you back on dry land. 
because you were flailing a little bit. And I was. I was. I was grateful they gave me the room to make mistakes and to learn. And then they took the time to pull me out of that water, and pump the water out of me and get me on a path to where I am today. I'm curious, Sean. I mean, I could say the same thing about myself post-journalism, but what was it that you were doing that in hindsight you realized, thanks to your colleagues, was actually not the right thing to do? I think one thing was a lack of recognition that you do have finite resources. The answer in the news business is probably always yes. Frequently, your disposition is you're given a task, you don't know how to do it. The answer is yes. And you figure it out afterwards on your own. Think of the communications business. It's necessarily more collaborative. And I think you oftentimes find yourself having to say no, or let's be much more considered and thoughtful about what we're going to say. Because when you are a principal or when you're an institution or an organization and you say something, those words stick in a way that maybe writing a news story is just the latest day's headlines. For organizations, when you communicate, sometimes that may be the only bite of the apple that you may have in your particular space in a public sphere for months, if not years. So it really matters. You have to be a much more strategic thinker, I think, than maybe in the news business. Yesterday's newspaper is in the birdcage, and there's another one coming tomorrow. Yeah. Boy, that was so well said. Thank you. Now that you are leading an organization in support of communications professionals in the foundation and nonprofit space, what do you think, Sean, are the must-have skills or personal assets, the ones that will really set our young listeners apart as job applicants who want to break into the world of communications, whether in the social goods space or in the for-profit world? Well, I think it's starting sort of in the space that I know best, which is the nonprofit communication space. I think one thing that's necessarily true is that you just don't have unlimited resources. That's not a demerit. I actually think in many ways that creates some opportunities to be incredibly creative and in fact, really, really effective. But I think if you're coming into this space and you're looking for skills that you can bring, one thing that surprised me is I just assumed that everybody in communications was an extrovert. And I now know that's not true. In fact, I would wager it's probably a pretty good 50-50 split between introverts and extroverts who do this work. What's interesting to me about the introverts who do the work is oftentimes they're very, very, I'm going to make a gross generalization here, but oftentimes more empathetic and sympathetic and have a really high EQ, that emotional quotient. They have a really good understanding of folks around them. And they're good listeners and observers. And that serves them very, very well. Extroverts also do very, very well because a lot of the work that you're doing in communications is sometimes it's planning an event. Sometimes it's hosting a big meeting. Sometimes it's speaking in front of a crowd or writing a speech or doing something that's a little bit more forward-facing. I think there's room for all kinds of skills. I think the fundamental skills are deep, deep, curiosity and an ability to step back and think through a process. I think it's one thing that I know now as someone who both worked in the news, but certainly now who's consuming it is that almost every day when you're seeing the news out there, someone deliberately, and oftentimes many, many people have played roles in shaping that before it ever got to your Twitter feed or the front page of the New York Times. And so that could be data scientists. That could be researchers who are doing quantitative and qualitative analysis on what kind of messages are effective. Could be these are people who are crackerjack writers. Any number of these different skills all come to play in a communication shop. And I think the one thing I would say is you probably will learn where your skills are best suited by going and doing the job. There's some people who become specialists, but I think people who really succeed have a lot of skills they bring to bear. I also think it's worth noting that there's no such thing as a unicorn. No one does everything well. 
figuring out what you're passionate about, what you enjoy, and putting your focus there is probably going to serve you very, very well, whether in the comm space or anywhere, really. I'm so glad you said that because I do think it's very easy, especially for someone starting in the industry to feel that they need to learn how to do everything and do it as well as the best. And the truth is, you may be a terrific writer, but not a great public speaker. You may be an amazing public speaker, but you can't write talking points to save your life. So this can help you. The process of being in different jobs, especially early in your career, can help you find where your strengths are and what you enjoy doing. And oftentimes they go hand in glove. So Sean, I would love to talk with you about this really top-notch conference that the Communications Network curates and produces and organizes every year called ComNet. And I spent quite a bit of time the other day reading about the sessions you had last year. And what is so terrific is that you summarize the sessions and the key takeaways on your website so that folks like me who weren't there can still learn. Before I ask you about this year's conference, could you share what makes it such a valuable experience for communications professionals? And you don't have to speak necessarily to this example that I'm about to share, but one session I read about had these takeaways, the importance of listening to and learning from your audience as opposed to speaking at them, and how to create channels for community-inspired content and conversation. Again, you don't have to speak to that one, but I just wanted to offer it up. Thank you for the kind words. I mean, I think the thing that's so gratifying about ComNet is it's really a community-driven event. We have almost all the sessions, the ones that you're referring to, are created by our colleagues and peers. Uh, people, in fact, just now we're in the process of weeding through, I think we had nearly 140 submissions for what will be 20-some spots at the conference. And so to me, that's really gratifying. My goodness, there are 140-some people representing really amazing organizations who want to share what they're learning. And just as gratifying as seeing this community come together and learn from one another. There's an old colleague of mine, Mark Morgan, until recently was at the Hilton Foundation. He used to say about ComNet, you know, you will learn a tremendous amount if you come to this conference and just listen and open your heart and open your mind. But the people sitting next to you, the people you'll bump into in the hallway, they'll change your life. And I think that's really the spirit of ComNet is that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to learn, to pick up new things, to wrestle with ideas or questions that perhaps you've been struggling with. And you can do that with colleagues and peers, some of who may work in similar kinds of organizations, some that are quite a bit removed. It's always fun to see someone who's working in ocean conservation, deep in conversation with someone who's doing public policy around tax policy or something. And having a grand old time and seeing, despite the fact that the topics they work on may be different, challenges they face in their professional lives are very, very similar. But I think that that idea that community is at the core of what the network is all year, but then particularly the sort of magical days when we all come together is really, really gratifying. And then to your question or to your point about us sharing all of this stuff, I think our belief is this is one of the luxuries of being a nonprofit organization and working in the sector is there's a disposition to be generous. Right. I mean, it's our job. It's part of our mission to package up everything that we learn insofar as we can and then give it away. 
because to us, the real value is, as Mark alluded to with his thought, was a true magic happens when you're in the room together. You can't recreate that, unfortunately. So we're always delighted, and comment's been growing. In fact, I think, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this, but one of the, the shittiest aspects of my job is having to turn people away. Every year for the last few years, we've had kind of a lengthy wait list, and we usually sell out pretty early. And it really sucks to have to say to somebody who's come to you in a spirit of, I want to learn, I want to be part of this community, and we just simply don't have enough rooms at the end. That's too bad. And do you live stream it by any chance? We do. Yeah. We've been partnering for the last couple of years with our friends over at the Chronicle of Philanthropy. And so we live stream all the keynotes. The breakouts, unfortunately, we just don't have the wherewithal to be able to put a camera in every single room. But we do have, as you know, we have note takers that will go in and take notes. And our breakout presenters are always kind enough to go back and check and make sure that they're accurate. And then we share those out as quickly as we can, usually within a week or two after the conference closes. Those are up online for everybody. I know that this is a particularly big anniversary for you coming up with ComNet in the fall, in October. Could you talk about what perhaps young communications professionals in particular would get out of this conference and who is able to attend? I think generally ComNet draws senior level folks, so mid to late career folks, people at the director and VP level. But I'm always delighted when we have younger people attend. And over the last couple of years, we've been very fortunate. Our friends at the Rockefeller Foundation have created something called the Frank Carell Scholars Program, where we're able to bring in 25 people from nonprofits. And they usually tend to be early career who come to the conference. And of course, we welcome anybody who's able to come and make the trip and be with us. I think the one thing you'll learn is that one, you learn that there's just this wonderful community of people who are doing this work, that there's this tremendous ethos within the community, not only at combat, but across the year of people being willing to help one another. Someone reaches out and says, I have a question. Could you share your fill in the blank? People will do that. And that's just incredibly gratifying because it's just not very common in other sectors. And Ford doesn't call up GM and ask them how to make an engine or <laughs> volunteer to share how they just made their most recent engine. It just doesn't happen. But that happens all the time with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation teaching something to the Brookings Institution and someone at the Pew Research Center sharing something with somebody at the Conrad and Hilton Foundation. It's just incredibly cool to see. You solve problems faster together. You just do. And you learn faster together. And the other interesting thing is, I think, as a group is that you call the question. I think if you come to ComNet, we always say that the goal is that we want to offer you ideas, insights, moments of inspiration, and some fun. And I think that if we manage to deliver that kind of an experience, you're going to go back to work. Hopefully, you're going to be smarter. You're going to be better. You're going to feel more supported. You're going to have access to maybe two or three friends that you've made, and maybe a lot more than that, will support you, be a mentor, help you in your journey. I mean, I'm always mindful whenever you walk into the conference, your next boss or your next employee, your next mentor, or someone who's going to change your life is within close proximity, and you have to take advantage of that. It's just an incredible gift. That's fantastic. Sean, you've also got local comnets now in cities all around the country. Is anyone eligible to join or attend these gatherings? Oh, the Com Network local groups? Yeah, this was a really incredible thing that our board did was we recognized that at the conference, ironically, people would travel across the country and run into somebody who worked down the street from them. And that despite good intentions, life happens and that cup of coffee that you promised you were going to get with one another, when you got back home, just never materialized. So we started creating these groups and really the community started creating these groups around the country to gather people so that rather than seeing one colleague for a cup of coffee, you could see 15 or 20 or 50. And the really great thing is you don't need to be a network member 
If you go on comnetwork.org and find a local group that's active in your community, you can get onto their email list. You'll be invited to another event. You're welcome to attend and you'll meet just some extraordinary folks who live in your backyard who are doing this work. And hopefully, again, you'll make a friend, a mentor, maybe that's a future boss, or if you're a little bit further along in career, somebody that you may hire. And those communities are really vibrant, really amazing. And the great thing is that sometimes when they gather, they pull together events and then they share it out with the whole national network, which is really great and neat to see when that happens. Yeah, awesome. And anybody is eligible to anybody join is this? eligible. Yeah. We uh, it's, it's show up. If you want to be part of the community, you are welcome. Awesome. So Sean, I would like to flash way back to when you were an undergrad at Colby College in Maine and you majored in government and philosophy. Did you know what you were going to do with your degree when you graduated? Well, according to my father, I needed to find a job. (laughs) I I had had this idea when I was in school, and it seems very, very quaint now that I'm many, many years removed, that I was going to go to law school. And my parents did me a great courtesy. They told me that they had very generously paid for Colby's a private school, and they'd paid for college, and that grad school was going to be on me. So I'd gone through the process of taking the LSATs, and I guess I did okay. I got into a few schools that I wanted to attend, and I deferred for a year because I wasn't quite sure that I was going to be comfortable taking on the debt that was necessary to attend law school. And it seems quaint considering how much these things cost now. So when I came home, my dad was like, you got to go get a job. And so I went back and got the the job that I had after I was always kind of astounded by the many, many late nights and all-nighters I pulled for studying for this exam or putting that paper together, only to find that shortly after graduating with a degree and doing well and all of that, I was scooping ice cream. I was back having the job that I had in high school. And as you know what, there was nothing wrong with it. I had a hell of a lot of fun that summer. Interestingly, my first job was at ABC News. And I got it, I think, not because I was a great ice cream scooper, although I'd like to think I had some skills, um, (laughs) but because I was persistent. I called up this gentleman named Pat Cullen, who ran the assignment desk at ABC News many, many years ago, and he's a friend to this day. And I would call him up every week and ask him if he had a job. And at first, he was very polite. He'd answer the phone and he'd recognize my voice and say, I'm sorry, I don't have anything for you and hang up. Eventually, he would just take the call and say, nope. And I wouldn't even get a word out edgewise. He'd hang up on me. But I would do it every single week. And then just about the, I guess it was about September, I was packing up to move out to Colorado with a couple of my college buddies. I decided if I wasn't going to get a job, I was going to go be a ski bum. And as I was literally, the car was packed, I got a phone call from ABC News and they invited me to come down. And literally I walked in and someone from the news desk handed me a W-2, one of those tax forms, and said, we'll see you tomorrow. They didn't even ask me if I wanted a job. They just handed me the tax form and assumed that at that point I'd been bugging them so much. The only way to make me go away was to give me a job. And so I had to call my buddies and tell them that I was going to pay my first month's rent. But then after that, they were going to have to figure it out on their own. And I was going to go work as a freelance desk assistant at ABC News. Oh, my gosh. Well, good for you. So it sounds like there were probably three or more months that you were calling every week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were they were absolutely sick of me. <laughs> I think it was probably about 12 weeks. It was about four months. It felt like a long summer at the time. But I look back on it. And it was a fun experience. And I say that now because I'm 47. I don't think I felt that way at all when I was 22. <laughs> well, just keep in mind our listeners, I hope they appreciate that there wasn't email and there weren't websites and the only way, and there weren't cell phones. So the only way that you could get in touch with organizations was either by writing them a letter, maybe faxing mm-hmm. them or calling them. So good for you, Sean. By the way, you should still call. <laughs> There's lots yes. of ways for people to ignore you. Telephone calls are harder. Yes. And people appreciate persistence. It's a good skill. 
I'm so glad you added that in. Absolutely. Sean, what about extracurricular activities when you were at Colby, whether internships, volunteering, work, clubs, sports, teams, whatever that maybe in hindsight you think actually helped you hone skills that were valuable when you got out into the real world beyond, of course, the ice cream scooping? Yeah, I was going to say the competitive beer drinking probably did not qualify (laughs) as a skill that I took into the workplace. For those of you who went to Colby, you know there's beer dye, and I, like everybody else, was required to play. I did a lot of stuff in college, so I think it was about taking advantage of, well, in one, Maine is just a naturally beautiful state, so I did a lot of hiking and outdoor stuff, and that was oftentimes with friends, but sometimes on my own, just exploring that big, beautiful state. I played sports. I helped with some friends create a political magazine. I think we actually managed to produce a couple of issues. I'm not sure they were any good, but the process of doing that was really fun. And I guess I I feel a little embarrassed about this now, but I I should be proud of this. I was really into creative writing, and I had the great good fortune of having some really, really wonderful teachers. Richard Russo, the novelist, uh, was a creative writing teacher at Colby at that time. And so I got to take classes with him, and that was just a tremendous joy. And I wrote poetry, and I learned a lot from workshopping that with colleagues and friends and doing readings and everything. And in terms of how did drinking beer, playing rugby, and writing poetry apply to my early career skills, I guess early in my career, you had to do lots of different things. And you had to learn them fairly quickly. And I think one of the wonderful things about being young and being in school is that sort of elasticity or plasticity of the ability to do 10 different things in the span of a day, many of which you just don't understand or know and you're going to have to develop an aptitude towards. You get knocked down a lot and you stand back up again and try some more and you discover some things you get really passionate about and some things hopefully along the way you discover that's not me, not what I'm into. So I can't point to any one particular extracurricular that was incredibly instructive other than, and I don't know if this would qualify as an extracurricular, Colby has it as part of its mandate. I think it continues to this day was they always tried to kick the junior class off campus. They encouraged us all to go abroad or to study elsewhere. So that could be a semester in Washington. In my case, I was in Mexico and in London. I think that opportunity to travel was extraordinary. And the fact that it was done so in the context of school was a gift that the school and that my parents gave me that was just pays dividends to this day. I had a few campus jobs which were incredibly useful. The campus had a cheap movie night. We would show movies after they kind of run through the theaters and you pay two bucks or whatever. And I was the projectionist for the campus movies. So I got to see all these wonderful films. And I have to believe that that played some role in really making me interested in storytelling and visuals. So going into television news was a way to sort of bring those things together. I think that might have actually, now that I'm thinking about it, that might have played something of a role, watching a lot, a lot, a lot of movies. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I bet it did. Have you seen the movie? It's about the old man and the young boy that developed the friendship, and he is the... Oh, Cinema Paradiso? Yeah. Is it the Italian film? Yeah. I got to see, I'm dating myself, but I graduated in the early 1990s, and so it was sort of that early wave of like what's now known, I guess, as indie cinema, which was truly independent. This was like the early era of Quentin Tarantino and, and folks like that. So I got to see just some Pedro Almodovar. I got to see some wonderful, wonderful films that time. It was just great. Love it. So two final time for coffee questions. And these are ones I try to ask all of my guests for, in this case, Sean, a time in your professional life when you struggled, it could have been, you know, having a 
difficult boss or challenging colleagues. It may have been getting fired the way that I was in 2007 when CNN didn't renew my contract. Uh, It could have been just screwing up a project. Whatever it was, more importantly, how you persevered and what you may have learned in the process. So I screw up on the daily. I hope everybody can hear that loud and clear. I make mistakes big and small all the time. And the good news is, is that as long as I have my health, I have a chance to make amends or to learn a little bit, to get a little bit better. And I think that's a great gift is giving myself the room to make mistakes. And it's taken me some time to get to that point. Earlier in my career, one thing that jumps out at me is for many, many years, particularly through school, I was told by teachers and friends and parents that I was a good writer. And I took that as a badge of honor. It was part of my identity. I'm not only a reader, but I am a good writer. And a little bit later on in my career, one of my bosses just did not like my writing. And I took it deeply personally, really started to doubt myself. It had a profound effect upon me that this person that I respected, that I admired, I could not make them happy with any of the written products that I was producing. Whatever I did, it was wrong. And, and I learned a couple of things about that. One, I think I can say this again, forgive me if I'm cursing. I, he was a shitty boss. He did not do a good job of teaching. He did a good job of criticizing. I think there's a big difference when you're leading. It's about coaching out what you like and encouraging and getting people to repeat the things that you see that, you're, that are good or finding ways to build. So I learned a little bit about leadership and about management from that. I also had to learn to get my confidence back. Because later on, and in my current job, it may not be the sexiest stuff that I get to write. I get to write reports for my board, and occasionally once in a while I get to write for something that's consumed out in the public. But I've discovered that my voice is my own, and I have the luxury of having a quirky voice that makes sense to me and seems to please other people. So I guess the mistake that I made was in doubting myself, and I did for a good long while. It took me a long time to get my confidence back. I would run the other way for a good long while after that when a writing assignment came up, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm ashamed of that. I'm sorry that that happened, and I wish I could go back in time and give the younger version of me a hug and be like, buddy, one person's opinion is not your identity. And by the way, neither is being a good writer. That's totally subjective. But the discipline of writing and reading and doing it over and over again, you're going to get better, and you're not going to be everybody's cup of tea. That's just the nature of the world. Oh, Sean, thank you so much for sharing that. And I am so glad that you recognize that that was a shitty boss and a terrible manager and a very subjective opinion, clearly, and one person's opinion. And you may even have a handful of people that don't think you're the greatest thing in the world. The hard thing is to hold on to your self-confidence and to kind of keep your spirit from getting crushed. And maybe it means leaving that organization to go somewhere else where the environment would be more of a learning environment as opposed to a criticizing environment. But thank you so much for sharing that, Sean. Oh, my pleasure. Last time for coffee question. If you could go back to Colby and do it all over again and pound as many beers as you... No, no, no. (laughs) I would would probably go back and say, don't do that, Sean. Right. I was going to say, so based on the wisdom you have now... What advice would you give yourself? The advice that I would give myself on the first day of college would be, you have just received the most extraordinary gift. Your only job is to learn. And because it's college, and this is true for most folks, you're going to have a couple classes you're going to have to take that you may not be super excited about, but you have the luxury of basically getting to choose what you want to learn. 
the general disposition, your default position, except maybe when it comes for beer, should be more. I want to know more. I want to ask more questions. I want to investigate more. I want to learn more. I want to see more. That is the single biggest luxury. I can't think of another four-year period in my life where I was just able to sit back and read books and learn from people. And literally because I got to travel while I was a student, explore the world. I mean, what an incredible gift. So I think approaching the experience with a sense of wonder and gratitude and maybe putting aside some of the moments where the tedium shows up or the stress shows up and just understanding what an incredible, extraordinary, privileged experience it is would be the thing I would say. And then I'd probably also say lay off the beer. (laughs) You and me both. Sean, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. The people at the Communications Network are so lucky to have such an exceptional and self-aware leader who has so much empathy and compassion for the work that you're doing and for the cause and the causes that these people are working on behalf of. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and good luck. Thanks to everybody for sticking with us this long. Hopefully something in there was useful to you. I certainly hope so. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.